Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Monday. It's the Monday after. I feel a little bit hungover from uh, the impeachment vote. We actually uh, did an emergency special Bulwark Podcast Saturday night um, while we were still sorting through the wreckage of the Senate vote uh, to acquit, but not exonerate uh, President Trump. Um, and p- there are people who are saying now that this is going to be the turning of the page to the beginning of the Biden administration. Who knows? So who better to talk with us about than Jonathan Allen, who has just completed what is likely to be the first draft of history of the 2020 election. So, Jonathan, welcome back on the show. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate that. And hopefully it reads at least a little bit more like a second or third draft. But uh <laughs> Okay, well, no, fair enough. So it, it's the, the the title is lucky how Joe Biden barely won the the election. That's right. Okay, so this is by you and Amy Parnas. Okay, I don't want you to give it away because it comes out on March second, and we will have you back on. We'll have both you and Amy if that's possible. Yeah, we talk we, about we, that. We greatly appreciate that because I think that's an intriguing title. You know, Joe Biden being lucky. Although when I you know do that little game, which is like, hey, a year ago at this time, this is what all the pundits were, were thinking. I kind of, you know, it was um, remember the Iowa caucus. That was that was it for Joe Biden. He was he was completely he was completely done. Yeah, we and we go into uh, into depth on um, that Iowa caucus performance and some of the other uh, difficulties that Joe Biden had becoming the. Um, you know, what now appears to be the inevitable president of the United States, right? Like if you just forget right. all of the history, it's, it becomes clear what uh, what was going to happen. Well, see, this is the interesting thing. I'm sorry not to get into it, but I mean, it, it is worthwhile just remembering how contingent history is that after the fact, everything seems very orderly and sort of inevitable. But when you actually live the history, it's anything but. And, and that's something to keep in mind going forward, too. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, you know, we'll talk more about this later, but I mean, that's what we try to do for readers is take them back into the moment um, and, and take them behind the scenes on things that they uh, remember moments that they remember, like the Iowa caucuses and say like, okay, well, here's what's actually going on uh, with Joe Biden behind the scenes as you're watching this play out on television or what's going on with Bernie Sanders. And then, you know, in the general election, same kind of thing with uh, Biden and Trump. So, um, you know, hopefully we can talk about it later, but hopefully, uh, you know, People are able to sort of get themselves back into those moments and and learn something about it and find out a little bit more about our politics. Okay, so let's talk about this weekend, the weekend vote. Uh, Not a big surprise that the president was not convicted. Um, 57 votes, however, uh, to convict him. And then, of course, that very weird moment that I think people are going to be parsing through for a very, very long time. Mitch McConnell, moments after voting not guilty, goes on the floor of the Senate and says he's absolutely completely guilty. In fact, he's the most guilty human being ever. And I hope he gets thrown into jailers or something like that. And then over the weekend, we you know begin to sort out uh, what the future of the Republican Party is going to be. And let's just start. We just I don't know. Is it gratuitous to start with Lindsey Graham? You know, I, I, I OK, Lindsey. Lin, I, I, I feel like we've told the Lindsey Graham joke so many times, but but here here's Lindsey Graham uh, on the on a Sunday show yesterday. Chris Wallace have and we shouldn't have followed him and we shouldn't have listened to him. And we can't let that ever happen again. Senator, is Governor Haley wrong about Donald Trump's future in the Republican Party? 
Uh, yeah, Donald Trump is the most vibrant member of the Republican Party. The Trump movement is alive and well. People believe that he brought change to Washington. Policy-wise, it was long overdue. Uh, all I can say is that the most potent force in the Republican Party is President Trump. We need Trump plus. And uh, at the end of the day, I've been involved in politics for over 25 years. Uh, the president is a handful, and what happened on January the 6th was terrible for the country. But he's not singularly to blame. Democrats have sat on the sidelines and watched the country be right. burned down for a year and a half, and that said a damn word. And most Republicans are tired of the hypocrisy. So, no, Nikki's wrong about President Trump. Uh, North Carolina, the biggest winner, I think, of this whole impeachment trial is Laura Trump. My dear friend Richard Burr, who I like and, and have been friends to a long time, just made Laura Trump almost a certain nominee for the Senate seat in North Carolina to replace him if she runs. And I'll certainly be behind her because I think she represents the future of the Republican Party. Oh, sweet Jeebus. John Allen. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to throw that ball to you. One thing that's true, Senator Graham, is that he appears to believe everything he's saying at whatever moment he is saying it. Um, but as that wet finger in the wind feels the shift at some point, uh, he will repudiate and renounce whatever it was that he said uh, today. And so at some point you can expect uh, that Lindsey Graham will be saying that Donald Trump is the past of the Republican Party and the future is vibrant and strong and somebody else is the leader of that Republican Party. And you'll know that uh, that shift is happening because Senator Graham will be one of the first to get out there and turn his back on his previous position based on the wind shift. Well, he did on January 6th. Remember, he said he was, you know, it was a beautiful relationship, but he was he was done. And then people, some people yelled at him in the airport. And apparently that was enough to, to get him back into line. But here, here a man of the people that all it takes is a few people actually speaking to him to get him to change his mind. I mean, it does feel like I, I when I was listening to him, I looked out the window to see whether, you know, the moon was purple in his world. I, I just it's so weird because, you know, the Republicans have lost the presidency. They lost the Senate. They still don't control the House of Representatives. The president has been impeached twice. He is disgraced. And yet he is the he's the most vibrant person. And then you listen to that. And he goes out of his way to say the future of the Republican Party is Laura Trump. Is that the future of the Republican Party? Uh, I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see. There are certainly Trumps who want to run all over the country. You know, Laura Trump in North Carolina, perhaps Ivanka in Florida. Um, you know, there may be a Donald Trump Jr. Oh, candidacy out of Montana or Alaska or, you know, pick the Western state where Shoot uh, me now. constituency. Um, you know, but I, look, I, I don't think Laura Trump is the future of the Republican Party in terms of um, you know, some sort of intellectual ideological underpinning. I mean, look, you, you know, the folks at the Bulwark, and I know a lot, a lot of you guys, mm -hmm. um, you guys are intellectual conservatives, right? Like, by and large. And you might be able to map out a plan for where the Republican Party should go that has some consistency with the idea of small yeah. R Republicanism <laughs> and conservatism. That ain't Laura Trump. I mean, that, no offense to her, but I mean, that's not what she spent her life doing. No, it's it's not. Um, OK, so the, the the flip side of the the future of the Republican Party is Laura Trump is uh, Senator Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, one of the seven Republicans who had voted to convict uh, Donald Trump. And by the way, I mean, 
I, I said this morning a little bit earlier, I said, you know, mad respect for these seven Republican senators. I mean, I don't think anybody should underestimate just the sheer raw political courage it took. Um, you may be more cynical than me. I'm pretty cynical. But but, you know, even the ones who aren't up for reelection, I mean, they're going to face, um, you know, all the feces flinging wrath of the Trump is flying monkeys now. But also, I mean, for Cassidy, I mean, Cassidy's from Louisiana. That's that's pretty that's pretty, that pretty, pretty hardcore Trump country. So he's been very, very forceful in explaining why he voted to convict. But then he's also talking about the future of the party. Here's here's Cassidy from yesterday morning. We saw that statement from President, former President Trump yesterday. He said his political movement has only just begun. Do you think he can run a credible campaign for president again? Will he remain a force in the Republican Party? What does that mean for the Republican Party? I think as force wanes, the Republican Party is more than just one person. The, Repub the Republican Party is about ideas. We were the party that was founded to end slavery. We were the party that preserved the Union. We were the party that passed the first civil rights law. We were the party that ended the Cold War. We are the party that before COVID had an economy that had record low unemployment for everyone that disabled the high school dropout, the veteran, the woman, the black, the Hispanic, you name it. That is the party of ideas. Now, our, now the American people want those ideas, but they want a leader who is accountable and a leader who they can trust. I think well, our leadership will be different going forward, but it will still be with those ideas. Mm, mm. So... Who, who, who's more likely to be right about the future of the party, Graham or Cassidy? Graham. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I Graham, think it, Graham, yeah. Graham has benefited his entire career from uh, making judgments about where things are headed. But here's the problem. There's, there's a real divergence, isn't there, between the direction of the Republican Party primary voter and the position of the party in the general election. Because it's interesting, in the, in the states where they've gone Trumpier, they tend to start losing. I mean, look what happened in Arizona. It used to be a solidly Republican state. Now it has two Democratic senators. Look at Georgia. Same thing. Solidly Republican until recently. Two senators. Um, two Democratic senators. Virginia. Uh, now no longer a, a, a purple state. So, I mean, there's this is, this is a real problem. I mean, Mitch McConnell, and I'm not trying to defend Mitch McConnell, clearly is trying to have it both ways, right? I mean, he's trying not to antagonize the base while signaling that at least the institutional elite of the Republican Party wants to move on. But the base isn't moving on, is it? No, the base isn't moving on. Um, and, you know, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, look, uh, you've got a Republican Party that is, um, at least on the issues that Trump, um, and I think Cassidy was getting at this, at least on the issues that Trump has forwarded, um, you know, is, is very much in his camp. Um, it is not the Republican Party of free trade, you know, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but also the degree to which Trump was a cult of personality means that uh, there were all kinds of things he, he did that would never have passed muster with the Republican Party, either wing of it. You know, he's sort of the Trump base or the, um, you know, not to say never Trump uh, side, because I think it's bigger than never Trump, the set of Republicans who don't necessarily agree with everything that he did. Um, but because you've got that sort of, uh, that ability of Trump to get people to sort of change, change their own minds on, on policy topics. Um, it does matter whether he continues to be, uh, personally the leader of the party because, you know, huge, uh, you know, huge spending increases are not something that, um, the Republican party is, uh, I mean, it tends to like them more when there's a Republican president than when there's not, but like, generally speaking, that's against the orthodoxy. Right. Um, 
and Trump doing, you know, subsidizing farmers uh, in the middle of a trade war, like socialism are not conservative, right? Like that's not conservative ideology. So you watch this, like sort of these camps, you know, rising and falling. And, and obviously the Trump camp is biggest. And I think what Cassidy is envisioning and what McConnell is trying to envision is what does the Republican party, maybe Graham to some extent, what does the Republican party look like if it's a Trumpian party without Donald Trump at the head of it, because I think they all recognize, all three of them in what they were saying, I think recognize the degree to which, or at least to some degree, that President Trump is not the best messenger of his own message and policies. Uh, no. Uh, so there was a poll this morning. Was it the was it an ABC poll this morning showing that 58 percent of the electorate want, wanted uh, Trump to be convicted, 58 to 41, which pretty much mirrored what the vote in the Senate was. That gives you kind of a sense of where the country is right now. I, I, I see that uh, um, Joe Biden has a pretty strong approval rating. I, I guess the, the question is whether or not Trumpianism, obviously Trumpianism can still Trumpism can still win a Republican primary. I guess this notion that somehow that's the future of the party, you know, in, in winning in winning back Congress and everything, that seems to be much more questionable to me at the moment. I mean, what should what I think would be, should be scary to Republicans is that the Democratic Party has a near monopoly right now in terms of elected officials uh, on who supports small R Republicanism. Yeah. The Democrats are both Democrats in a small D sense and Republicans in a small R sense. And there are 17 Republicans in all of Congress. That's, you know, more than 200 Republicans. 17 of them said, uh, you know, you can't you can't send uh, an army to storm the Capitol to keep the president. <laughs> 17. You know, I actually ran through this this morning, you know, the what the Republican Party has been telling it, uh, telling us about itself. You had 126 Republicans who backed the Texas lawsuit to overturn the election. You had 138 Republicans who voted against certifying the electoral votes of Pennsylvania. You had 199 House Republicans that voted to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on our committees. You had another 197 House Republicans who voted against impeachment. So you're right. You know, uh, basically, if you take Saturday's vote overall, the pro-Trump GOP vote in the House and Senate add them together, 240 to 17. So, yeah, that's that that's Donald Trump's party. But you make it the point about the small R and the small D. You know, I mean, it's kind of like old news that Republicans have been willing to look the other way about the lies, the racism, all of the corruption, the xenophobia. But now it's also now willing to look the other way about, you know, violence, extremism, any Democratic authoritarianism. So. There's a yeah. way to look at Mitch McConnell in that context, and obviously it's very different. He didn't encourage people to riot anywhere, and I can't imagine anyone rioting on behalf of Mitch <laughs> McConnell one way or the other. But, you know, Donald Trump didn't accept the election. Right. He, he didn't accept losing, and so he sent a mob to the Capitol. Mitch McConnell didn't accept the idea when he lost the Senate vote over whether it was constitutional to impeach Trump. He didn't like that, so he voted against it anyway, right. citing the thing that the Senate said wasn't true. And you get to this point where it's like, you know, the the key factor for Mitch McConnell, the key factor for Donald Trump, and I think a key factor for a lot of other people, certainly those who stormed the Capitol, and that's not to say that they are representative of the larger Republican Party, but 
what they're upset about is not the loss of a republic. They're not upset about the loss of an election. What they're upset about is the loss of the ability to uh, to hold power. Right. Um, and in particular, the, you know, the potential long-term loss, and they are willing to sacrifice anything to hold on to that power, whether it's McConnell or Trump or, you know, writ larger, uh, I think, um, the Republicans that's, that support damaging our republic long term they just don't they, they don't care about having a republic as much as they care about having power and again that's not the whole republican party but i think of the elected officials it's a significant percentage well that's scary i mean when you think about it i mean that that that's how democracies die when you have that and unfortunately the that sort of extremist anti-democratic uh constituency has become large and influential and Obviously, the Republican Party doesn't want to push back on it. Okay, so speaking of Mitch McConnell, let's just play this because I want to talk about what you think Mitch was doing on Saturday, and let's kind of parse this through. So this is this is Mitch McConnell again. This is moments after he had voted to acquit. This was the guy who had created the technicality by not allowing a vote uh, before Donald Trump left office, and then afterwards. He says, as you point out, well, we can't do it now that he's left office. So, I mean, the the, the logic pretzel is pretty awful. But but l- listen to a little bit of what Mitch McConnell said on the floor of the Senate. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. The issue is not only the president's intemperate language on January 6th. It is not just his endorsement of remarks in which an associate urged, quote, trial by combat. It was also the entire manufactured atmosphere of looming catastrophe, the increasingly wild myths, myths about a reverse landslide election that was somehow being stolen, some secret coup. Okay, John Allen, what what is what is Mitch McConnell? What 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 is he up to? Because I'll, I'll okay, I understand the cynicism and the hypocrisy, but he was pissed too. I mean, that speech could have been given by the House managers. That speech could have been given by Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi. So, what's Mitch McConnell doing? I think someone convinced him that he couldn't vote to convict. Right, and maybe it was himself. But I mean, at some point, the I mean, all of this flows backward from the decision to vote not to convict, which I think troubles Mitch McConnell. I don't think there's a lot that troubles Mitch McConnell, but I think the decision to vote not to convict is something that he had hmm. actually ambivalence about. Uh, and I think everything works backward from it. Um, and so he decided that he had to go out there and 
kind of mea culpa his decision because basically what he said was the equivalent of, you know, that Osama bin Laden fellow, what he did is terrible. I think Pakistan or Saudi Arabia ought to take care of it. Yeah. Not that the United States should go find bin Laden and kill him. You know, like not, you know, I mean, this is what the the logical equivalent of this is, is I have power to do something, but I'm not going to do it because really someone else ought to do it. This, Um, by the way, this is the key, I think. And and JVL made this point on our podcast on Saturday night. This, this feels like a flashback to 2015 because you have Republican elites who know how awful and dangerous Donald Trump is, but they always want someone else to deal with it. They won't draw the red line. They won't do anything to stop him themselves. They're figuring there will be somebody else. It'll be that next primer or this group or that group. And now they're they're sitting up there going, this guy's terrible, um, but we want the courts. We want something, somebody else. So they're frightened of him. They, I mean, they've seen what has happened to those and some of them did it themselves. Who have gone up against him, and what what is the answer? Ted Cruz went up against him, and and he did it pretty mildly. And the answer was uh, Donald Trump calling Ted Cruz's wife ugly, and saying that his father had been involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination, um, and doing it with a very loud megaphone. And so, you know, if you're a Republican member of Congress, you 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 know you can stand up uh, and decide that you're going to, and I shouldn't say all Republicans because some of them are with Trump, but for those who are opposed to him, you can either stand up and and risk your seat and risk your reputation, or you can stand back and stand and be ready to help him fight. Well, 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 but but that's what what Mitch did is so interesting because Mitch comes out and he's got a loaded 45. He aims it at Donald Trump's head, like, but metaphorical. metaphorically but he raises it and fires it like like a foot above it in other words you're shooting at the king but you're shooting to miss he had a chance to go after the king chose not to so in some ways he has the worst of all possible worlds the the big headline is acquitted i think that he goes on the floor to make sure it was acquitted but not exonerated but the headline was still acquitted but he denounced trump in the strongest possible way so he crossed that line he attacked Trump, but wasn't willing to actually do anything to take him down. I mean, as anybody who's been on the wrong side of a civil rights vote in the Congress would tell you, votes speak a lot louder than words. Yes. And so what McConnell did, whatever McConnell said after he voted is less important than what his vote was. Now, right. Do I think that I've heard some speculation that he did this for donors. I'm yeah. sure that it is helpful for him with donors. Uh, do I think that's why he did it? I, I honestly think that had he voted to convict Trump, and he might even have been able to sway a couple more in his direction, but had he voted to convict Trump, he would have immediately made himself powerless. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, even more so than others, he had a lot at stake. I also think that if Mitch McConnell has evidence for a criminal trial, we will look back later and at the moment where he stood on the Senate floor and say he was previewing, not that he was in favor of uh, Donald, a, a punishment of Donald Trump, but that he was actually going to do something about it. For the moment, he has done nothing about it if he is right. providing evidence to the FBI. Because who other than the Senate majority leader should have been in touch with the White House 
in that crucial, very crucial period between when the Capitol was stormed and when Donald Trump actually tells people that they should, you know, go home in peace, which is many hours later, Mitch McConnell would have been in touch with the White House. You would hope. I mean, and if it was not him directly with Trump, you know, there are legisl- there's there is a legislative liaison office from the White House to the Senate. Taxpayers pay for them to make sure that there's a liaison between Congress and the White House at all times. There are security officials who would have been in touch with White House security officials. I mean, the idea that Mitch McConnell doesn't know what was going on in those hours is absurd. Well, this also raises the question of the number of people, the extraordinary number of people who know things that happened that did not come forward. It's kind of like the John Bolton thing. They were there in the room, but they chose not to speak about it when it actually mattered, including including Mike Pence. I think there's going to be a whole lot of uh, stories, a lot of information that's going to come out, and none of it is going to be exculpatory to the president. So, okay, I understand. Uh, by the way, I would read yeah, Mike Pence's book. I would. Well... It depends whether he decides, you know, if he stays mad. Uh, but yeah, I actually, who I would read Jamie Raskin's book too, in terms of like books to read. But I'm and look, I'm not trying to defend Mitch McConnell in any way. Okay, so I, because I, I I think that what he did was, you know, that, that he basically orchestrated this entire fiasco. But and I also understand that that what he said is far less important than how he voted. But I think that the story of this impeachment is going to include this double bump where they vote to acquit. But then he goes on the floor and he says this is not to vindicate Donald Trump or exonerate Donald Trump because the guy is guilty as sin. And I think that any any narrative of this vote is going to include that. It's also interesting the number of Republicans who also voted not guilty, but then are uh, you know essentially kind of hide behind the the procedural thing and then denounce Trump's actual behavior. It will be interesting to know what they say going forward. That if you say that yes, he was responsible, he was reckless. I didn't think that it was appropriate to vote to uh, impeach him, but yes, it was awful. How do you then turn around and say? Okay, we're we're okay with giving him four more years in power. Now, of course, they will do it because we've seen them do it in the past. But it is interesting. Also, uh, Lindsey Graham, I didn't uh, play that. He's he was upset with McConnell's statement because, and he predicts, I think accurately, that 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 soundbite will be played in Senate uh, elections in 2022. That this will be used uh, against Republicans who voted. Uh, to support the president, I, I think, or at least it will be used against against Trump and Trumpists for some time. He's right about that. I'm not sure how much it affects votes, and this and this is the reason, um, Charlie. I believe, different from a lot of what you read and hear today, which is that the vast majority of Republicans, even Trump supporting Republicans, think that storming the Capitol is not okay. And I think that the vast majority of Republicans think it's so not as okay, not okay, as to deserve some sort of censure or rebuke. Mm-hmm. And they are defensive of the president because they like the president. But let's remember, as awful and horrible, and this is not to mitigate at all, as, as the storming of the Capitol was, it was only a couple thousand people mm-hmm. out of the 74 million who voted for Donald Trump. Um, and for that, we are very lucky. And I think we're very lucky that uh, that the Capitol Police didn't just open fire on everyone. Oh, gosh, I think yeah. There would have been a million people at the Capitol the next day. So, yeah. But I think 
I think that there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who both support Donald Trump and do not like the idea of him being, uh, you know, impeached post presidency, and at the same time, essentially agree with Mitch McConnell's right. And so, you know, within that space, I would say that that you're in pretty good stead if you're a Republican member of Congress in the future. Um, that that Mitch McConnell, having said what he said. And also supporting you in, say, a Senate primary is not going to prevent you from winning a Senate primary. So, so I, I, I know there's there's a risk. I mean, there will be one example or two, okay. examples, but I don't think it's a click yeah. across the board. Yeah. So I don't want. Obviously, you know, I don't want to keep beating this, but you know, it is still the Monday after it happened just two days ago. Um, you and I were 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 talking about this right before we started the the the, the podcast. There were seven Republicans that voted to convict. Um, this is historically significant because before, as, as you, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, when Mitt Romney voted to convict Trump in the first trial, that was the first time that any member, um, that, that any senator had voted to convict a president of his own party. Is that correct? That's right. So now seven. So this is by far the most bipartisan. So we can do a coin flip. You get to choose. It's like, do you know that seven Republicans voted to convict versus only seven Republicans voted to convict. So which which is which is the which is the hotter take there that it was seven, which is a lot or seven, which is pathetic because it's only seven versus 43. Both. I like I can't decide. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, let, let's flip. Let's flip a coin and argue it either way. I mean, it's just like, right. Um, go either one on that one. Look, in theory, in theory, impeachment should be something that either the entire Senate is basically on board with, at which point a president, it should never happen that a president is impeached and removed from office because uh, it should be so unanimous uh, that no one questions it, or it should be entirely partisan, meaning one side's like, oh, no, we're willing to defend this. And what you had here was something unusual that in that it, it split the Republican Party. And yeah, so the, the number who voted for it is 14% of the Republican conference in the Senate. Um, and yet still, you know, by by leaps and bounds, historically significant uh, in terms of, uh, of of the of the crossing of an aisle to get rid of your own president. And all I can say is that from a strategic standpoint, um, if you're the Democratic Party, figuring out how to split the Republicans on an impeachment vote is exactly what you would want to do um, if you were trying to cause the most political pain. Yeah, I think that I I think that's cor I think that is uh, that's correct. So um, among those seven senators, which was the most surprising to you? Um, I, I was more surprised by those who did not vote to convict. Okay, than any like, of those who did. I mean, I really? actually had identified Burr a long time ago as somebody I thought might convict. I thought I thought hmm. uh, Shelby might vote to convict, hmm. um, in part because he had just retired, and I thought yeah. that degraded him. Um, I thought Rob Portman might vote. Right. I thought so, too. Yeah. Um, you know, he's somebody who has uh, been I mean, there's no greater institutionalist uh, in terms of his own ambition than Rob Portman. Right. Um, and he's somebody I mean, he's been somebody who was a we we're talking about legislative liaisons from the White House of Congress before he was a White House lobbyist toward Congress, you know, in the H.W. Bush administration, a congressman, U.S. trade representative, uh, budget director um, and senator. And so. You look at a guy like him, it's like, how can you be against the institution? How can you not find a place to, to uh, stand up for um, for the republic, for the institutions? I mean, I've talked to Rob Portman for 20 years. 
this guy doesn't like what Trump did. He doesn't believe in the Trump Republican Party. He's a free trader. He's he's a traditional conservative in, in every conceivable way. Jonathan, without getting into your book, which we want to have you and uh, Amy Parnes back on again, um, could we? It seems weird that we're we're this far into the Biden presidency and and the presidency has been overshadowed so dramatically still by us wallowing in in, in Donald Trump. So just give me your take on uh, the the start that Joe Biden has. Has there been anything that has surprised you about the first few weeks of the Biden presidency? Not really. It's been uh, unspectacular, which I think is what Joe Biden campaigned to be. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, I think there's a, a degree to which his his entire argument is like competent government uh, doesn't need to be, um, you know, on Twitter all day long. Um, what, yeah. I think we're, we're getting some of that. There will be um, strong moments for the Biden presidency and there will be weak moments for the Biden presidency. And I think he's still a little bit in the honeymoon period right now, uh, certainly within his own party. I think, you know, from the press, it, there's a little bit of a honeymoon period, but that won't last forever. The reality that Joe Biden is president will set in sometime in the next, you know, month or two, and uh, he will get scrutiny, and we will find out: are vaccines being delivered in the way that they should be? Is the economy being tended to in the way that we would like? You know, is, you know, all the sort of normal questions that you would have uh, about a president will will come up, and uh, he will be scrutinized, and he will, uh, you know, he will benefit a little bit from the soft bigotry of expectations post-Trump, meaning that like uh, it, it's impossible to dominate things the, to the degree that Trump did. It is impossible to um, to bend, bend the rules and the norms and the frames of institutions the way that Trump did. And so to some extent, nothing that Biden does will ever look outlandish. It, 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 it is true. Actually, there was an article over the weekend, you know, that uh, the, the Bidens are bringing PDAs back to the White House. And I had to actually like, well, PDAs. Public displays of affection. They actually did a whole article on public displays of affection, that sort of normality. So the, you, you, you mentioned the two big ones, getting, getting the vaccine out and getting the economy uh, restored. Basically, that's the only thing that matters, doesn't it, for the, the, the Biden administration? I mean, everything else is kind of white noise. He gets those two things right. He's going to be in good shape. He fails to get those things right. Then nothing else is going gonna, is gonna to keep him afloat. Yeah, I think that basically that's what it boils down to. Can he get credit for saving the country from the pandemic? Can he get credit yeah. for bringing the economy back? And I would argue that, um, you know, for any president, a lot of the factors there are outside their control. I would argue the same for, you know, Donald Trump, that, you know, the economy is larger than the president. Um, they can, I think, oftentimes can do uh, as much, if not more damage than they can good uh, when it comes to the economy. And uh, but the but the question of the government involvement in vaccine distribution in PPE distribution because we're still we still have a PPE shortage um, that is a uh, place where the the president's activity can be uh, perhaps a stronger footprint is something that you know you would more uh, you know accurately assign credit yeah. to blame for he's, he's, he's got to he's got to get that so there are actually two are two other storylines that are kind of interesting in a, in a wonky kind of way during the campaign there was one of the you know he kept talking about the fact that he was a deal maker as a creature of the senate that he could work across the aisle with republicans and a lot of people said you're kind of naive the senate is very very different so it does appear right now as we're speaking that two things are happening number one that 
He is holding the Democrats together in a remarkably coherent way, given who the Democrats are. That's a surprise to me. Um, but he's also not getting the kind of bipartisan support that he was hoping to get. And it looks like he's going to push through the COVID bill on straight party line vote. Um, first of all, do you disagree with that? Does it, do, 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 do you see any, any bipartisan support for his legislative agenda at the moment? Uh, I don't. Um, no. I think, you know, infrastructure is always bipartisan. Um, and, you know, well, neither, th- neither Obama or Trump could get it done largely because of the price tag. Um, and the possibility that you'd have to raise taxes to do it or the, the likelihood that you'd have to raise taxes to do it. But, um, you know, I could see, I think spending on priorities of members of Congress is about to come back in vogue in Washington in mm. a big way, um, both on the earmark level, which is uh, the sort of um, lubricant of legislation. Which is a uh, very interesting development. Yeah. And also on the sort of broader scale of like their, you know, because if you're going to spend five, seven, ten trillion dollars on uh, on a recovery from the pandemic and on the, the you know the pandemic itself. Um, I think some of these members are going to want to start to actually be able to say, look, we're going to put a couple hundred billion into um, rebuilding our roads and bridges. Yeah. So tell me about the Democrats, because we spend most of the time talking about Republicans on this podcast. But it is interesting how fractious the Democrats have been. Uh, clearly, there's some really significant ideological differences. And yet that party seems to be hanging together behind Joe Biden. Um, how, how, how is 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 that is that just a function of the fact that their margins are so narrow? They have to be like that. Is he benefiting from the fact that they only have very, very tiny majorities? Yes. And, you know, you saw George Bush, George W. Bush benefit from this in the uh, House and Senate during his presidency. At times, I think the uh, Republican margin in the House was they, you know, they had 221 mm-hmm. votes to 215 for the De- 215 mm-hmm. for the Democrats, something along those lines. Um, you know, they basically had a 50-50 Senate um, when any single defection could mean uh, or does mean the, the uh, dis- defeat of the president's agenda. Um, people are loath to defect, um, you know, when the votes are actually put on the floor. They don't want to be the person that, like, cost their uh, entire party the ability to do something that they probably personally agree with, even if their constituents might not. Yeah, I think that's helping them. But I also think that we are, you know, essentially we're less than a month into the Biden presidency. Um, and after four years of Trump, it should be no surprise that the Democrats are you know pretty unified and feel like they should do yeah. everything they can to bend over backward to be unified. I think that will break. You know, history suggests that the Democratic Party will find a way to let that break apart within the next, say, I don't know, thirty seconds or so. Now it looks like they're not going to to vote against the filibuster, at least abstractly voting against the filibuster. But is there a prospect that? that there will be a piece of legislation that that the Democrats feel so intensely about that where they feel popular support that they might abolish the filibuster. In other words, you know, not just saying we're going to abolish the filibuster, but doing it for, say, voting rights or something like that. What what, what are the prospects of something like that? I actually think the vote we just saw this weekend on impeachment is going to drive sentiment toward getting rid of the filibuster, not because filibuster affected hmm. impeachment. It doesn't. It takes a two-thirds majority uh, to impeach. Um, and the filibuster is a 60-vote threshold and separate issues. But I think what I think what the Democrats have just seen is the exact number of Republicans that they feel comfortable working with. 
for you know for yeah. the next couple of years and and the number there is 7 which doesn't get you to 60 and so in order for the democrats to get anything done with a filibuster they have to get all of the people who voted on the republican side to uh convict trump plus three more who voted not to convict trump and i think their their patience their willingness uh to to let that play out will be much shorter because of the impeachment vote all that said yeah. There are more Democratic senators than have been out there publicly who support the filibuster because it is good for them personally as a representative of their state or good for their state or good for small states. Um, And, you know, Biden himself was uh, a huge defender of the filibuster uh, as a member of the Senate. In fact, he gave a speech, I think, in 2005, one of the Mm -hmm. longest (laughs) you'll ever see from Biden about how important the filibuster is. And so, um, you know. I think it's unlikely that he's going to push on the Senate in a way that uh, that makes the Senate Democrats move. So we'll have to see, I guess. The short answer, yeah, but no, like, I think the sentiment to, to get rid of the filibuster is only going to grow. Yeah, you, you, I, I think some of those lines are hardening, um, especially after something like this weekend. Jonathan Allen, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Jonathan Allen from NBC and the author of the upcoming book, Lucky. How Joe Biden, what's the subtitle? How Barely Joe Biden won the presidency. Barely won the presidency, but he did win the presidency. So uh, that book uh, with the Yukora with uh, Amy Parnes is coming out just in two weeks, in two weeks. So we'll, we'll, we'll be, yeah. After you do your whirlwind media tour, you can come back on the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll come back as part of the whirlwind that. media tour, I hope. Uh, excellent. Thank okay. You. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.